church, why don't we uh, turn to Second Tim or First Timothy chapter two? So First Timothy chapter two, verse one. We'll stand and read together. First of all, I then I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator, also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Let's pray. Lord, these verses are loaded with truth, loaded with application, and we're covering a lot today. I pray, Lord, that you help me sort through uh, what's important and what's not. Uh, lots of stuff's going through my head. I just pray that you bring the stuff to the forefront that matters. And um, yeah, that you, uh, your spirit oversee my thought processes and the thought processes in uh, the church today. And may this not be a, a, basically a, a lesson in knowledge, but a lesson in uh, wisdom and how to apply what we've learned today. Just like Janice's prayer this morning in Philippians, we want to move from the head to the heart and to the feet and the hands and that's what we want today to do as well for us so we uh, ask for you to guide us amen so remember last week we uh, spent our time looking at paul's charge to timothy who had been left in ephesus with a very difficult task Timothy, of course, had been stationed there to uh, put a stop to the false teachers who gained a foothold in the church at Ephesus. And knowing that Timothy's assignment was going to be a difficult one, Paul provided him with words of encouragement in order that he would persevere. Uh, one of the biggest encouragements was that he reminded him that, uh, he'd, that in the past, before he'd even been chosen for ministry uh, and joined Paul, that there had been prophecies made concerning him. And this was God speaking through men about his uh, position as a teacher and evangelist. And that in the laying on of hands when he was commissioned for ministry, a spiritual gift was imparted to him. Probably, again, teaching or evangelism. So again, God's hand had been in his life right from the beginning here to bring him to this point of leadership. But also he was to bring corrective to the church. He was to make the church pure. He could see that Paul had encouraged him to continue what he had done with Hymenaeus and Alexander which was excommunication. Well, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, right through to the end of the letter now, we begin to see the list of correctives, the list of correctives that Paul wanted to, Timothy to make in Ephesus. And so today we're going to look at a few of those uh, this morning. So the first corrective that Paul was to, or Timothy was to bring, was that this idea that salvation was not universal. That the offer of salvation was not universal, it was limited to an elect few. We can see the, the heart of this in this passage here, this, this, this necessity to see that the offer of salvation was exclusive to all people. 
the word all occurs four times in verse six, or uh, these six verses, first six verses. Read them with me in verse one. I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made, be made on behalf of all men. Verse two, for kings and all who are in authority. Look at verse four. Um, this is God who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Look at verse six. Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. If you mark up your Bibles, I would encourage you to do so. Four times in six verses, the inclusivity of God's offer of salvation to the entire world. All is on the heart of, uh, the, the heart of Paul here. Now, why, why would this be in, the, in this, uh, why the necessity of saying this here and now? Well, remember in verse seven of chapter one, that these men were te wanted to be teachers of the law. They wanted to be teachers of the law. So we know they had Jewish influence in their thinking. Well, everything we know about Jewish belief regarding who was entitled to God's saving grace was exclusionary in nature. That salvation was only for the elect. It was only for the chosen. And that even God took pleasure in the destruction of sinners. That was the Jewish thought. Do you remember in Luke chapter 4? Jesus walks into Nazareth, into the synagogue, and he starts teaching about how the Messiah has come. And the people start basically cheering and excited that he's come. And then he says this. He says, uh, uh, do you remember in the time in, uh, when Israel was in a state of unbelief, when uh, God extended mercy to two, two people that were Gentile? Remember when he extended that Elijah and Elisha appeared to a widow and a leper who were Gentile? and uh, how God extended mercy to them in a time of Israel's unbelief and the people in the synagogue lose their minds and go from excited about Jesus being there as a Messiah to take him to the edge of a cliff to throw him off. How dare you say Gentiles are included in God's elect and God's plan of salvation? It doesn't go that way. Salvation is for the Jew. That's it. How about the disciples? They're no better. The disciples, like, you know, uh, sometime in Jesus' ministry in those three years, uh, wanted to call down thunder and destroy Samaritans who were part Jew, part Gentile. They wanted to basically execute the, 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 these half-breed, non-pure Jews because they weren't part of God's people. This is in disciples' thinking. This is in the people, in the Jewish thinking, in the mindset. Well, we know when, like, with, for, the, for a lot of the Jewish belief, it's exclusionary in nature for who God's salvation is for. And we've seen evidence of this in the false teacher's thinking. We've seen it all through, through, um, through this. And so in verse 1, when he says, I want you to make entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings on behalf of all men, it's not that they would, they'd stop praying in the church. They had been praying in the church. We know they've been praying in the church. The issue is they've become exclusive on who they're praying for. It was limited. It was limited. And this is why in verse 2, he has to say, uh, you also pray, by the way, for people who are kings and in authority. Again, it's a correction because they probably weren't praying for their, their, their leaders, their governing officials. This is important. We also can see that they're exclusionary in nature by verse 7, believe it or not. He says, for this reason I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I'm telling the truth. 
I'm not lying as a teacher to the Gentiles. Why? Because these people who have Jewish understanding of the law and are Jewish in their thinking, you know, are trying to make, like, they're being exclusionary who, who the gospel's for. Or at least their understanding of the gospel, which was perverted. But the point is, is that these people weren't included. Paul has to say, I'm, I'm, I'm an apostle for the Gentile people, and Ephesus is full of Gentile people. You can look at Ephesians chapter 2. Paul teaches there about God made two into one man. He has to do a corrective even years before he wrote this letter to Timothy. So it's clear here that Paul was saying God's offer of salvation was not limited to a special chosen group, but for everyone. So because God's desire was to be the savior of all, the, chart, the church was to start praying for all. Now notice there are four types of prayers there. There's petitions, thanksgivings, entreaties, and actually the word prayer. Now, at first glance, it might seem like Paul's instructing them on four different kinds of prayers, and they all have different kinds of like sort of power or nuances or specificities. To be honest with you, I don't think it's important um, what the differences are because they're minor. In fact, in the New Testament, the word entreaties and prayers, by the way, are substituted. In other parts of the letter, the exact same. Uh, where the word entreaty occurs, the word prayer occurs, and so on. So they're, they're very much synonyms for one another. So the thing, I don't think the types of prayers that he's asking for are important here. Because this is what Paul's really saying. If you're going to pray for the salvation of all humanity, you're going to need to use every means of prayer at your disposal. <laughs> In other words, let's just dig down and let's just plead to God in every form possible so that he would move and bring people to salvation. And this is important because when we do pray, we do get God to supernaturally get involved in bringing people to the Lord. Look at Colossians 4.2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping it alert with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time that God will open up to us a door. Paul believes that if you pray, God will open up doors for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. Paul recognizes his prayers can move God to create situations for evangelistic conversations and spiritual dialogue that wouldn't normally be there otherwise. This is, this is really important. And so we're, in verse 1 then, there to be praying for the, on all, in all forms and in, in, in all categories for the, on behalf of all men to be saved. Because God will get involved and open up situations for us and for them in that context. Now what's important here, this is especially true of governing leaders. Look at verse 2. He says, pray on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority. So this was not an issue of just the common person. They were to pray for the governing officials. And that day, it was the emperor. The emperor, provincial governors, their local magistrates, the Roman army. Today, it would be people like the prime minister, our provincial leaders, um, our mayors, and people in law enforcement. Now again, why, why mention pray for governing leaders? Well, because they had stopped praying for go governing leaders. They had excluded them from, from being part of God's grace. And you could see why. Rome was led by tyranny. Nero, who was in power at that time, had been a proven persecutor of the church. 
He, would, he martyred Christians horrifically. He'd sew them up in animal skins and throw them to wild ants, like throw them, up to, throw them to dogs to be eaten. He'd make torches out of them. He'd dip Christians in tar and put them on posts and light them on fire as a spectacle. He was tyrannical. He martyred many Christians. He'd proven himself to be an enemy of God and his soldiers carried out his tasks. And so, they, of course, if you're an enemy of God and you don't think like God and you have morals that are anti-God, you'd think, well, why would I bother praying for them? They're opposed to the Lord and His ways. And we're, we only have one king anyway, and that's Jesus Christ. And I want to speak to this. I learned this phrase from Dick Lucas, who's my favorite pastor, Bible teacher on the planet. He's from London, England. He called it a false liberation theology. Christians have to get away from a false liberation theology. Meaning this, <clears throat> that because I have freedom in Christ, Christ is my only king and I'm not to obey anyone else. He's alone my authority and so I'm free to do whatever I want. Paul made major corrections to this type of thinking. In Romans, he said, let me remind you of why the government's there. It's to punish evil and reward those who do good. So yes, there's a time where to disobey the government, just don't get me wrong, but Roger handled that in a sermon at, at Genesis House. I'm not going to reiterate those things. But First Peter, in First Peter, Peter had to correct that thinking as well. And here's the point. Um, he says the government is there to uh, establish by God, and it's there for a purpose. And so we're to actually think of them, we're not to have this, this false liberation theology where Christ alone is king. And that he's the only one that we're to obey. We are actually, by obeying the governing authorities and praying for governing authorities, we actually are serving the Lord, our King. So Paul's point here is this. Not only to obey, but to pray. Now why would this be important? Because of the benefit it brings to a believer. Look at verse... Like, well, obviously there's salvation, but also the benefit to a believer. Look at verse 2. If you pray for kings and all those are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. You see, this makes sense. People who hold positions of power and influence have tremendous ability to affect change, don't they? They set the direction of society, whether for good or for bad. Proverbs 29.2 says this, When the righteous thrive, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. Well, if we want to live in peace and harmony, a tranquil and quiet life, and live our lives in a way that, sets the, that can be pleasing to God, and have the Christian values push, push through our culture and, and to live in, in, in honoring Him that way, it's not going to come about by grumbling about our leaders. That's not going to invoke any change. But if you pray for their salvation, they come to know the Lord and they have a heart change, they will then instill God's values in our society. And Proverbs 4.23 says, The heart determines the course of one's life. Well, if these people in governing authority and, and, uh, and these have the ability to affect change think like God and know God, they will affect change in our culture for God. Jeremiah 29.7 says it this way, Seek the peace, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you will prosper too. Listen, the who's, who was in exile? The Israelites. To who? The Babylonians. He's like, if you, if you pray, 
yeah, pray to the Lord for, for it to go well amongst their leadership so that it'll go better for you as Israelites within the land. This is really important for us, church, in terms of, of this. I'm going to ask you a very personal question now. And I asked myself this question this week. So the Lord's already dealt with me, so, but I'm going to deal with you through the Lord. <laughs> Trudeau lately, last 30 days, how pleased are you with some of his actions, with the way he's been handling things? Just in the last month, based on what's on the news. I us to take every single one of your lives on recorder and put it on this screen for us to hear through the speaker. How many minutes would I have heard complaining words versus praying words for his salvation? <laughs> you see Paul's corrective? You see Paul's corrective? To all of us, you pray for the salvation of your leaders. That invokes change, not grumbling for your leaders. And when we do this, Paul says in verse 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. This is good, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Trudeau is included. Notley is included. Non-conservative people are included, by the way, church. <laughs> There's no distinction here about conservatives are the only ones you pray for. And I say that because I know you're bent. <laughs> is that why I think I know all you're bent anyway? But yeah. Really important, church. And God dealt with me this week first, so you take that for what it's worth. Now, for this to occur, though, Certain truths, in terms of the salvation to all men and people receiving Christ, certain truths regarding the gospel have to be understood. This doesn't happen by osmosis. There's certain truths that have to happen in a person's life for them to come to know Jesus Christ and to accept the knowledge of truth and to be saved. And the first one is in verse 5. For there is one God. I'll just read the two verses. For there's one God, one mediator between God and men, the Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. The first truth, there's only one God. If you're going to come to salvation, you have to believe there's only one God. Now, this is a reference, remember Paul's Jewish, he's Jewish. To, to, the, to make the claim there's only one God is really the Shema, the, the, um, the uh, Jewish saying that from Deuteronomy 6.4 that when every Jew would stumble out of bed in the morning, they would recite, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. There's one God, the Lord, not many lords. Now this is important, remember, in a declarative in Israeli culture, in the Israelite culture, and in our culture, and in the Greco-Roman culture. They all lived in polytheistic societies. There were many, many gods. To claim there was one god was actually very significant. In fact, I learned this when I was at Regent College. They actually, uh, apparently, they believed that, uh, that Christians were called atheists. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Why? Because they only believed in one god, and everybody else believed in multiple gods. In our culture, to be an atheist is believe in no god. But you were atheistic as a Christian to believe in multiple, uh, to only one God back in those days. That was a pretty cool thing I learned from my professor. That's how rampant polytheism was. 
So Paul's really saying this, the fact there's only one God then means that he's God over all peoples, all peoples, and everyone is accountable to the one God. But there was also one mediator. There was also one mediator. This is also important to recognize in terms of the gospel truth. If you're going to come to the knowledge of salvation. Now the fact that Christ is referred to as a mediator here tells us that there's something wrong between God and man that was not right. You see, a mediator... Well, let me just... Yeah, me and Donovan have been having good conversations about what a mediator is. And it's a lot bigger than this. This is, this is quite a long conversation and very in-depth. But let me try to summarize it very in just sort of like a succinct two points. A mediator's role is to, they're obligated to represent two, two or more parties fairly. Two or more parties fairly. So they can't take a side. It has to be like even keel. And number two, they're to bring resolution to a conflict or establish peace to a, a, a relationship that's got alienation between it. Now, I remember, I remember Kevin, Kevin was telling me one day about uh, he, he had done some work for a client and it was in the quite high numbers in terms of what was owed and um, the client wouldn't pay. They wouldn't pay and they had a discrepancy. So Kevin was pushing for the money to be paid and the client was saying, no, I'm not going to pay the money. It had to go to mediation. It had to go to mediation. The mediator's job was not to represent Kevin over that person or that person over Kevin. The mediator's job was to represent both parties fairly and to bring resolution to the conflict. That was the key of the mediator. Here, he says, there has to be a mediator between God and man. So why, why is this the case? Because the conflict between God and man is that God is the king of the universe. He's the one who's put all the rules in place on how to live, it, live in terms of loving him and loving others. But because we've all broken God's laws and sinned, there's a penalty now that has to be inflicted for being a lawbreaker. And the penalty, according to Romans chapter 6, is death. For the wages of sin is death. So we need someone to mediate on our behalf so that when we die, uh, we, the power of death doesn't have to basically be inflicted upon us. We don't have to be separated from God. That we can be in right relationship with Him. That peace can be between can be made between a holy God and a sinning person. And how this was accomplished was, verse 6, he gave himself as a ransom for all. He gave himself as a ransom. The same Greek word for ransom is used in Titus 2.14, and why this is important, it's in the same context of the pastoral epistles. He says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify himself as a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. The word redeem here is the same Greek word as ransom. So he gave himself to ransom us from every lawless deed. So he came to redeem us from every, from every uh, sin we've done against God for breaking his law. And so 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, He made him who, know, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So substitution so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So when Jesus Christ went to the cross and spilled His blood at Calvary, he, that was the means by which we could be restored with God and experience peace with Him. And of course, this has to be received by our repentance and our confession and our faith in Jesus Christ. It's not just given because we like, have a head knowledge. We have to reflect that in the way we live and what we understand. 
But this is really important, church, because if I were to make a statement today regarding mediation, crisis mediator, if I was to make the statement today, you know, there's only, we believe there's only one God. There are people out there today that would agree with you. They would say, yeah, I believe there's only one God too. A Muslim would say that, for example. People believe that there's only one God. But here's the thing. If you make the statement today there's only one God, many people would say, yeah, but there's many paths to God. <laughs> Paul shuts the door right here. He says the only way for uh, you to be, the only way for you to approach God and be in relationship is through a mediator. And there's only one mediator, Christ Jesus. There's only one path to the one God. For Paul, this was the gospel message and the one he'd been appointed to preach. And so in verse seven, he says, for this has appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Again, this statement here is further evidence that the gospel was not exclusive that the one God was the God of everyone, for the God of everyone, Gentiles, Jews, kings, and those in authority. There was one way to God through Jesus Christ who gave himself, gave up his life so that we could have eternal life. And this was the gospel. There was no exclusion. Second issue is found in verse 6. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Here we go. <laughs> so there are some within the Christian circles, God, the people that I respect and, and uh, people that I would admire and learn from, that believe that what Paul's, calling, what Paul's calling men to here is to take the spiritual leadership of the church and take the primary role in leading the church in prayer. While I, suggest, I, while I do believe that that's an important function for men to take initiative and to take, like, you know, to take, take these issues seriously and to, to, and to show leadership, I don't believe that's what Paul's talking about in these verses. I don't think that's what Paul's calling the men to do. You see, in 1 Corinthians 11, he recognizes that women are to pray and prophesy in church. There was an issue of head coverings going on there. And he said this, when the men pray and prophesy, they're to take their head covering off. When women are to pray and prophesy, they're to put the head covering on. So the issue there wasn't that men should be praying over and above women. It was, it was their attitude and, and in the way they were praying and what the head covering symbolized. But they still had a role. They both had a role in praying in the church. The key I think here has to do with the issue of wrath and dissension. That's the key to solving what's going on here. The word wrath means to be indignant or to be angry. And the word dissension is to be quarrelsome or to be contentious. Who possessed these character traits in Ephesus? From everything we've learned so far. The false teachers. The false teachers. Listen, 1 verse 6. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion. 6 verse 3. 
these men have, have gone into morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and men of deprived, deprived of the truth. These men are the false teachers. They are, have these characteristics and they're teaching and they're cause, causing now through their teaching the, the, the believers in the church to also experience and uh, demonstrate some of the same qualifications or characteristics because they're creating arguments in the church and quarrels and infighting when, when they're meeting together, both inside the assembly, like when they would get in the house churches and probably on the streets when they gather as well. This is the issue, the men there are into, or have a bunch of infighting and they're full of pride and they're full of arrogance. It's an issue of pride and arrogance amongst the men and they're, and they're fighting. <laughs> so Paul's call to men to lift up holy hands in prayer is a call to remove pride and arrogance that filled the hearts of the men in Ephesus. You see, watch this church. Holy hands in scripture. When you lift holy hands, do you know what that's a sign of? Personal humility and dependence on God. That's what that's a sign of. I'll prove it to you from the text. I'll prove it to you from the Bible. 1 Kings 8.22 Solomon's going to dedicate a temple. He does this. Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly, spread out his hands towards heaven and said, Lord, the God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. Thousands of people are gathered in Israel to see God be faithful to his promise because he told David there'll be a temple. But David, you can't build it. Your son's going to do it. The temple's done. And the king of Israel, Prime Minister Trudeau, Stands up nationally in front of the whole, in front of the national Canada and puts his hands up and says, I'm totally dependent on you, God, for what's been done here today. <laughs> it's a sign of dependence and humility on God. My, uh, his father David, uh, his father David says this um, in Psalm 28:2. Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help as I lift up my hands towards your most holy place. I'm utterly dependent on you, Lord. No pride in me. I'm so humble before you. And my personal favorite in all of scripture, Jack Daddy of the winner of the whole prize, Moses. So they come and there's a war between the Amalekites and Moses. And Moses, this is what it says. Or Israel is in the wilderness and Moses and the Amalekites are fighting. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And as long as Moses held his hands up, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired and he couldn't lift them anymore, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekites' army with a sword. Later on it says this, Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. Not Joshua is my banner. I'm my own banner. <laughs> I'm such a good leader. Look at everything I did. There's no wrath or dissension in Solomon. There's no wrath or dissension in, in Moses. These guys are fully dependent on the Lord. Personal humility. And he's saying to these guys, 
get, if we want to pray for the salvation of all men, get to the task of accomplishing this in the church. Stop fighting with one another. Stop fighting with one another and start praying for the, start praying the way, or actually get rid of your pride and arrogance and start praying for the salvation of the world. But first of all, get rid of your attitude and come to him with personal humility and utter dependence on him. You see, what wrath and dissension, I'm going to use my hands again. Do you know what wrath and dissension, like if I have the wrath and dissension between me and Don, do you know what my hands look like? This. And this. My hands are doing this when there's wrath and dissension. So if I'm fighting and Paul says, listen, stop, Andrew, Don, stop fighting. Stop doing this. Do this. It's not that this has power in of itself. He's saying this is showing an attitude change in your heart that you have moved from, from arrogance to dependence and personal humility on the Lord. That's what's going on, I believe, in Ephesus. And I know I stand in contradiction to some of um, my contemporaries when, when they see this as a call to men to take spiritual leadership and prayer in the church. But I don't think that's what's going on here. And I understand you might push back at me, but I've given you my case from Scripture. Now, I had to answer this question in my own studies. Does that mean if I'm doing this, it guarantees that I'm right with the Lord and there's no wrath or dissension in my life? No. <laughs> Isaiah 1.15 says this, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Okay. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. <laughs> Again, why? Why does he tell, why has Moses got his hands up and God's going, yeah, I'm proud of you for this. And yet, uh, Israel is told to put their hands down because they're, because they're sinning against the Lord and they haven't, they haven't repented in any way. They've rejected His counsel. They're not walking in truth. And so He wants them to get their heart right. And I think this is exactly what He's saying to these guys too. This is not, it's not like, it's more like, get your heart right with the Lord. And this is an action that demonstrates that you've made the right, correct, the right correctives in your life. Okay. Turns out, though, it weren't, the men weren't the only ones with pride and arrogance problems in the church. So another group of individuals had issues as well with their character. And these were the women in verse 9 and 10. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. The issues amongst the women in Ephesus were extensive. We're going to learn about this next week. Next week is going to be a sermon on motherhood, biblical motherhood. Now, but these women had put motherhood on the shelf. Don't want anything to do with it. They also had problems with authority in the church. These women, according to chapter 5, were busybodies and gossips. So there's multiple issues with the women in church. The problem here specifically in verse 9, is that these women had put a tremendous amount of value and worth in their external appearance over and above their internal character and how they walked with God. There was a focus on the external appearance and not in the internal character. Now, we know from Scripture that the Ephesians were wealthy. We know this. In Acts chapter 19... It talks about how when Paul was there, they, uh, a, a mass revival broke out in the city, 
And the people who practiced magic and divination brought all their books and had them burned at the city square. Dan, Dan did the math, like, so I give him credit for this. He did the, he did the, um, the, conver um, the work on this, but uh, they, they burned $50,000 or 50,000 yeah, 50, K worth of silver. Now in today's wages, one day's wage is one coin of silver. So one dollar of silver. So I just for fun made somebody make a $70,000 salary per year. $70,000, okay? On 70 grand, you'd make 265 bucks a day on 70 grand. When I multiplied $50,000 worth of silver in Arte's conversion, that would be like 13, just over $13 million in books being burned in magic and divination in today's dollar value. 13 million <laughs> burned. They were wealthy people. Just dispose of that much money and that type of stuff. And we know they're wealthy from here. Like, he, listen, like, who in the world has gold, pearl, gold or pearls? And he calls, he calls them costly garments. This is not Walmart shopping. This is not cubic zircornia rings. This is incredibly, like, pearl, like, real authentic pearls. Costly stuff. These women had money. They were, they were wealthy. The Ephesians were wealthy. But these women were also prideful and arrogant. They're putting their whole hopes and their whole value in the external. And you know what? This was not just the Ephesian issue. This was Israel's issue as well. This was Israel's issue as well. You know, God was hopping mad at the women in Israel's day when they were in a state of disobedience. Look at this. Um, look at this here. I'm going to read this from you, to you in Isaiah chapter 3. Beginning in verse 16. Moreover, the Lord said, Because the daughters of Israel are proud and walk with their heads held high in seductive eyes and go along with mincing steps and tinkling bangles on their feet, therefore the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs and the Lord will make their foreheads bare, meaning they'll be bald. In that day, the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, their headbands, their crescent ornaments, their dangling earrings, their bracelets, their headdresses, their ankle chains, their sashes, their perfume boxes, their finger rings, their nose rings, their robes, their tunics, their cloaks, their money purses, their hand mirrors, their undergarments, their turbans, and their veils. Now it will come about that instead of sweet perfume, there will be putrefaction. Instead of a belt, um, a rope, instead of well-set hair, a plucked-out scalp. Instead of fine clothes, a donning of sackcloth, and a branding instead of beauty. The women's problem in Israel was they were making everything about their external appearance, not their godliness. And God says, I'm going to judge you for it. I'm taking everything away from you so that you understand I don't care about that. <laughs> I care about what's going on here in your character and how you reflect that as a woman. Peter had the same issue going on in 1 Peter. We, we preached on this in chapter 3. He talked about how a, a woman's beauty has to come from the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. And why I love that verse is because you know who his model is for that? Sarah. Do you know how beautiful Sarah was? The most beautiful woman probably in all of scripture. When, when, you know when those, when those kings took her? When, when, uh, uh, you know, when Abraham um, handed over his wife basically twice to those kings, 
Do you know that she was like, like 70 or 80 years old or something like that when that happened? She wasn't 20. <laughs> he was 75, like when I think God first appeared to him. His wife was, the kings wanted a 75, 80, 85 year old woman. That's how beautiful she was. I mean, come on, imagine when she was 20. She was a knockout. And God doesn't even mention her looks. He talks about the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. A woman said this, a woman I trust and a woman that I think is really wise. Uh, um, you know, she's um, a wife of a pastor, I know. She said it this way. She goes, you know, Andrew, the problem with us as females, we don't want to just turn the heads of our husbands. We want to turn the heads of everyone. <laughs> and I thought, man, I think I have an illustration of that. I know like, my experience with dealing, just talking with women, it's all in joking fun, but I know a lot of women that will never wear a wedding dress twice, to, uh, the same dress to a wedding you know what I mean? Like, she won't wear the same dress to more than one wedding. And if I ask, why not? Why well, wore that once already? Yeah, so? Yeah, but people will see me in this dress. Yeah, yeah so? Like, I have to change my clothing because I don't want to be seen twice. Why? We're there for the bride and the groom. Like, I, I don't know about you men, but I don't take, keep record of who wears what clothes when I go to weddings. I don't even know what clothes I've worn to weddings. <laughs> Hopefully I have more close to weddings. <laughs> so, you know, the point is, is that, that's, isn't that a good statement? I mean, that's, that's powerful. Not the wedding part, but just like the whole, the, the, you know, we, women want to turn the heads of everyone, not just their husbands. That's the temptation, I should say. I should, I, let me rephrase that. Some of you might be thinking, well, I'm not like that anymore or whatever. But like, again, but just that's the temptation for you to do that. Once God's worked fully in your life, that tempta- you can overcome that temptation. And he'll give you the strength to, and the ability to, to fight that temptation. But here's the key, though. Again, God's focus is on the character. He, he, he values how we, you, you as women speak to other people, the way you, how gentle you are, how peaceable, if you're free from gossip, those types of things. And he wants the identity to be made in the internal character and how you live your life in reflection of God, in in relation to God, and not in how you are on the outside. Paul's making the corrective here. Where is a woman's value to come from? What is the most important thing? So I'll ask you a question, women. Where do you spend more time? In terms of your thought life, is it on your looks? Do you think about yourself, is it on your looks and how you're viewed? Or is it about the way God's working in your life character-wise? And how he can shape and remold you on the inside? That's the corrective Paul's making. Okay, let's go to the lessons. Lesson one. God's offer of salvation is not limited to a select few, but available to everyone. All, 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 all. Christ's ransom is for all. God's heart is for all to come to knowledge of tr- truth. Paul says, I'm a minister to Gentiles because it's not just about the Jews. We're to be praying for all. The Neros, the Trudos, we're to be praying for them. 
the Notleys, not just the Andrew Shears. <laughs> Number two, since God's desire that all humanity be saved, we're to be, well, we are to pray that all be saved. Kind of, maybe you already said that. Maybe it's kind of two lessons wrapped up in the ones. One of my commentators said that this way, his name is uh, Mounts, his, his last name is Mounts. He says, to not pray for everyone is to treat Christ's death with contempt. End quote. Again, why I love this too is from Colossians 4. If we pray, if we pray, God can open up doors for us to preach and teach the gospel message so that people can be saved. How lovely are the feet of those who bring good news, it says in Romans. I know I'll go through them fast. I'll, we can go back in discussion. Lesson three, through Jesus' death on the cross, so, oh, sorry, that's not worded well. Through Jesus' death on the cross, he made it possible for humanity to have peace with God. Again, the penalty for our sin against the Holy God is death. He died as a substitute so that if we put our faith in him, the penalty would be paid and we'd have eternal life. He gave himself as a ransom. He mediated for us, for, mediated between us and God. He made peace to the conflict, the conflict that was due to us, or the conflict between us and God, our sin. He made all that right. Four. When men come together in prayer, God's desire is that men are not full of pride and arrogance, but are humble and fully dependent on Him. When mo- that's a, it's an attitude adjustment in Corinth, or in, Corinth, in Ephesus. It's an attitude ju- adjustment. Get rid of this. Get rid of this and start being dependent on the Lord. It's a character change. Doing this is just showing an, that there's been, it's a, this is showing an, anti, it's like an antidote to the attitude. And finally, women are valued by God in accordance with a character and not outward appearance. God thinks it's an imperishable quality that's precious when you live a life of godliness as a woman. Your quiet and gentle spirit is what he, he loves. Not if you've worn the same dress to more than one wedding. 